I want you to turn with me as we begin Genesis 22 to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And sometimes I'm unusual because I give away the store, what's usually reserved maybe for the end of the sermon. Sometimes I just like to uh, put it out there at the front. And uh, this is what I want us to read about and think about and praise the Lord for. In fact, maybe, maybe not, Mike may have read uh, ahead uh, because I think we just sang this song. And that's this, verse 31, Romans chapter 8. What shall we say then? Or what, what shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think we did just sing that song, didn't we? So good job. And then, if that's not deep enough or um, touching enough, Paul is telling us by the power of the Holy Spirit that, yeah, it might be good to have friends on the team, colleagues on the team, people on your side. That, that, you probably like that. But if God is for you, I mean, who could even be against you? We wake up and we think, well, that person's doing this and that person's doing that and this is that and that, that and we worry and, and pay attention. And Paul right here in the inspired word says, if you have God or if God has you, there's nobody against you because you have God. <laughs> now they might be in circumstance, etc., but in reality, God has got it. Whatever you're going through today, you're going to come out the other side because God is for you. It's a promise. It's not like maybe. This is it. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Listen. And then he says, okay, and I want you to see exhibit A of the proof that God is for you. And we've read it so many times that maybe it doesn't hit like it should. But let's let it hit like it should. If God is for us, who can be against us? There, there can't be. And, and I'm going to give you some proof, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. He who did not spare his own son. but delivered him up for us all. And by the way, you know that Jesus set his face like flint towards the cross for the joy that was set before him. He went to the cross. Amen? So when you couple those verses with what you're reading here, listen, you see that the Father and the Son were in perfect cooperation. He who didn't spare his Son, he didn't spare his Son. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. Now, did it please in the way that we would think? No, I don't think so. What I think he's saying there is the people are so important. You people, us, we are so important that I'll send my son and I won't spare him. And he'll cooperate. Not my will, Lord, but thy will be done. He went willingly. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he, not with him, also freely give us all things? And Remember the end part of that verse. Would you please remember the end part of that verse? He's a giving God. He's a graceful God, full of grace. He's a merciful God. He likes to give. You and I, we could never outgive God, could we? He gave his son. And you imagine having to give your son. Wow. And so let that hit. That's God's everlasting love towards you and me and us. That's the love of God. You were so or you are so important to God. You matter to God. You're made in the image and likeness of God, but... He wants you to live in eternity with him, knowing that there's a catastrophic human problem that happened, that we rebelled. 
And that sin entered the world through one man and through one man to us all. And we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty and wages for sin is eternal separation and death from God. There's a big problem, but there's a bigger God. And so we move back to Genesis 22 with those things in mind. Uh, Genesis 22, we move back there. And we think about these things, and I think about the psalm where it says, deep cries unto deep. A deep cries unto deep. Folks, we're trotting. <laughs> Is that a word? Treading, swimming in deep water here today. In fact, I always talk about maybe, for me, there's four pillars of the uh, New Testament that I think if we learn, we really unlock the New Testament. Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, and 2 Corinthians 5. But that's just my own personal preference. I also think there's three or four pillars of the Old Testament. If you learn them and think about them and ask the Lord to speak to you about them, I think it unlocks a lot of the Old Testament and and the entire Bible and God's plan of salvation. And here's the first one. It's Genesis 22. I'm looking also, I think it's Exodus 12, when it's the institution of the Passover and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Those four are deep places to land and to think on. And here we find ourselves today as we recognize that it, uh, God didn't even spare his son. Can you imagine having to spare your son? Well, thankfully, Genesis 22 gives us some beautiful and wonderful things to think about, even though many have considered it, maybe even my, I myself as I was a kid and read this. My goodness, this seems almost like a horror story. Lord, don't, don't ask me to do this. And in fact, people have gone off the rails, people with... Uh, mental history and some injuries and things like that and have taken this and have done some dastardly things. And yet, I think if we continue to think upon it and hear about it and ask the Lord to speak to us about it, it would take us into a place of deeper adoration and awe and wonder. Now, I gotta tell you a couple stories. Uh, I'm sorry I have to tell it about myself, but that's the only thing I really know. And there's a couple people in here who have commiserated with me. Uh, 1992, I, uh, just completed uh, law school and, um, you know, I had jobs in the summer, but this summer I for, uh, you know, forgo, I didn't take a job in the summer of 1992. Two. In fact, what I would do every day, and some people don't have to do this, but I did. I studied every day, Monday through Friday, for about seven or eight hours a day. And I was studying for a bar examination and uh, taking the Ohio bar, Ohio bar examination. And it took, I studied about two months for that, maybe two and a half months. And at night, I would travel to Columbus about 30 miles away, and I'd go to a class to help me with one part of the test called the multi-state. And uh, so what happens is I took this bar exam in, um, in Columbus. So uh, the day of the exam, it was a three-day exam at the time. Three days. And I was, I know you can't tell it now, but back then I was a big runner. I'd run two or three times a day and lift weights and blah, blah, blah. And I was in great shape. So I took all my athletic clothes and all that sort of thing. And we go to uh, Veterans Memorial. It's an old um, convention center. We're down in the basement. I don't know. There were like 1,000, 1,200 people. Uh, the first day, uh, six hours, 
12 essays. No to- the topics, you had no idea what was coming. You just got it, and one half hour, you ran an uh, essay. They tell you, put your pencil down. That one's done. Go to the next one. 12, 12 essays, six hours. Uh, that night, I went on the way back to the hotel. Uh, I got something to eat, and uh, uh, I thought about running, except for here's what I did. I laid in my bed till the next morning. I was wiped out, man. And the next day was a thing called the multi-state. It was 200 multiple-choice questions over six hours, and what's uh, diabolical about the multi-state exam, at least two of the question or answers are correct. You got to pick with the one that's more correct. You know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, out, looking forward to something. I'm going to grab some, you know, whatever I ate at the time, probably Taco Bell or something like that. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to uh, work out. No, I just laid in bed. I was so wiped out. And the third day was uh, 12 essays over six hours, half hour apiece. And at the end of the test, you know when you go through something and you go, usually you go, ah, oh, that wasn't as hard as they say it was. No big deal, no big deal. This was as hard as they say it was. This was difficult. And it was st- uh, stamina as much as knowledge. And you just had to bear, um, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, stick with it. And I remember in about the third hour of the test, some young lady got up down in the bottom of Veterans Memorial and started screaming at the top of her lungs, like she was pulling her hair out type of stuff, threw the thing and ran out of the test. And you're sitting there like, hmm, is that going to be my fate? (laughs) That was a tough test. And we got through it. No big deal. And then I, I think of tougher tests. I mean, people have climbed, you know, we go out to Colorado and we go up to 13,000 feet or 12,000 feet and we're think, we think we're fancy and wonderful. Well, people have actually climbed, folks. 1953, I think it was, May, Sir Edmund Hillary climbed uh, Mount Everest. It's 29,000 feet, folks. 29,000. I don't even know how that's even possible because I get altitude sickness in 11,000 feet, but he didn't. And then I, I, you know, I I studied and looked through uh, how we got to the moon. And I got to confess something to you. Turn off and don't record this. I didn't realize that the thing broke up into pieces as it went. I had no idea about this thing. And I looked it up and, you know, and then they landed on what they landed on and then got back. Do you know when they landed on the moon, they had 30 seconds of fuel left? That's what it says in the history books. It's unbelievable. I mean, come on. How long must it have taken? I told you how long I studied for this bar exam. Two and a half months, no big deal. But how long must it have taken for these smart people? Have you watched Hidden Figures? Good movie, right? For these smart people to figure this stuff out and for these astronauts to trust and to train and to go through it. I mean, come on, all the testing and the mistakes and the disappointment and the discouragement and the testing. But it took a while. And in anything that you do that's really difficult and hard, not just a law exam, maybe you run a marathon. I know some people in here who run marathons. Well, you don't just get up on the day of the marathon and take off. You gotta train for a little bit. You gotta get your stamina. You gotta get your legs. You gotta stretch. You gotta, and then you need water and hydration and nutrition. You gotta do it or else you're gonna just collapse. Amen? And then I read this. Now it came to pass after these things, verse one of chapter two, that God gave a test. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to turn back one chapter, and I want you to look at Genesis 21, verse 12. This is the culmination of 25 years of promise. 25 years prior God had called Abraham and said, I want you to come out of your country. 
And I'm going to bless all the nations through your family. I'm paraphrasing, but you get it, right? And now this 21 verse 12 is just a little while ago before chapter 22. The culmination of the promise of 25 years. A promised son has been born. One that they had to wait for for a long time. One that they laughed about and scoffed about. And God gets to verse 12 of 21 and says to Abraham, don't let it be displeasing in your sight that Hagar and Ishmael, the son of the flesh, have departed. Don't, don't let that be displeasing because of the latter, because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah, that's his wife, has said to you, listen to her voice. Here comes, for in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And several times now, from the beginning of the promise to right there in 21, he, you know, they've sort of said things like, well, that's cool. I mean, uh, you know, we don't know how it's going to be. Maybe, you know, I mean, they don't say this, but adopt a kid or foster or something. And God says, no, no, you, I'm telling you, you're going to have a biological child. And, you know, there's some scoffing involved here. uh, excuse me, Sarah's in the tent. She hears some of this stuff when God's meeting with Abraham and says, really, I'm I'm old. I can't have a kid. And there's lots of things here that Abraham had to go through. Remember? In chapter 12, I mentioned this previously. All the way back in chapter 12, 25 or so years ago. Listen, can you imagine just being out your garden or talking to your friends and you're, you know, 800 miles away from where the Lord wants to move you and the Lord comes to you in the Old Testament and says, you know, I want you to move. Well, where do you want me to move, Lord? Uh, to a land that I'll show you. <laughs> oh, okay. And I don't want you to take your family but I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you land and all that sort of thing. And you, you know, you might be tempted to say, uh, is that the pizza talking? But he doesn't. He goes and he gets a little bit close, takes a little pit stop and moves in to the land of Canaan. But, you know, he's going to now trust him with a 25 year promise. Him and his wife. And along the way, we have learned that God makes a covenant with Abraham. And God shows up and honors Abram as he and his nephew, remember he wasn't supposed to take family, But he and his nephew go down to the area down in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the nephew says, I'll go that way because that looks good. And Abraham says, okay, you remember all this. And as they're traveling down the 25-year corridor, they know the promise that they're going to have a child. But Sarah and Abraham say, well, you know what, let's help God along. I'm not able to produce, Sarah says, so here, have my handmaiden, and you have a baby with her. Abraham says, really? And she says, yeah, really. And they have a baby, and that baby Abraham loves, but as you know, is the child of the flesh. That's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament, represents the flesh, the way in which we manipulate things even when God has promised them to us. We can still manipulate. We can be impatient. We don't wait. And you know a couple times throughout this 25-year history, oh, Abraham is walking into enemy territory and tells his wife to tell the people that she's... Tell him you're my sister, okay? And he doesn't learn once, and it happens again, And he has these encounters with these foreign kings. And the reason I'm sort of telling you all of this is because the Bible in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament stresses, we've said this throughout this entire series, stresses that the just 
Raise your hand if you heard the word just. The just shall live by faith. That's what the Bible says. The way in which we plug in and relate to the Lord is by faith and trust and obedience. Amen? Because obedience is an outward sign that we're inwardly trusting. Right? And so the just shall live by faith. But as you move through Abraham's story, maybe just like you and just like me, sometimes he's a bit more trusting than others. (laughs) And sometimes he's not really trusting at all. And sometimes I think we forget about it because Abraham, oh, Abraham, such a saint and such an amazing guy. Yeah, he is like you and I are, but we also fall short. We need the Lord. And so you get here and you see, wait a minute. There's been some scoffing. Now there's laughter. It's even the name of Isaac, laughter. Now there's laughter because we have a baby, Isaac. And remember, we talked about this. God says that the just, raise your hand if you heard just, shall live by faith. And we take that and we go, yeah, yeah, I have faith, no big deal. Well, let me read to you a couple things. James chapter 1. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Well, guess what? I don't like that translation. So I'm going to go to the New James, the New Kings, and I'm going to read it to you. Listen, listen to this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life with the, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. File that away. Come back a little bit in the same chapter, verse 2. Hey, brothers. Hey, sisters. Here it comes. Count it as joy when the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. That means mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, let me read you something else. I promise we're going to get to the story. Check out old Peter's writing. In 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, or count it all joy, James said. The half-brother of Jesus, James himself, said, count it all joy when there's testing. Who here loves to count it all joy when there's testing? Oh, oh, a couple people. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, if need be, God's doing something in our faith. We think it's us conjuring up the faith. God says, I'm going to develop the faith in you. I'm going to work with you here. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, there's that word again, by fire. Who likes to be in the fire? Maybe, it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Would you agree with me that the makeup and the daily life of the Christian is going to have testing? Testing. 
And God's doing something there. I wonder how many people here in the sanctuary on January 1st, um, you know, yearly goals, New Year's resolution, count it all joy, rejoice in the fire. And yet, there's some way, something that God is doing in us to test us. He gives us a test. Some people think, well, oh my goodness, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or E, F, oh, I'm going to get an F. And yes, I think there's a part of God's tests that help us to build our faith, but also, listen, listen, I think the tests are to reveal our faith. Not to him, he knows, but to you and to me. You've been a scoffer, Tim. You've laughed at my promises. I don't think he says it like I would say it, but you've laughed. And you know, even when I gave you the gift, you chuckled and laughed, and it felt like that you were laughing because you got the gift, not because you loved the giver. Do you see? There's other tests that can come. If you've been at Calvary, we've talked about this a lot. I mean... Not every test is from God. Not every trial is from God. Not every tribulation is from God. I mean, the Bible's full of it. Remember in the uh, New Testament when a tower fell on some people and they asked, well, Jesus, well, why that happen? He, he basically says, because they live in the world. Because we live in a fallen world and sometimes things happen in a fallen world that aren't optimum. But he's going to come and set things right. Amen. Why do trials and tribulations happen? Sometimes just because we live in a fallen world. Why else? Well, hey, the Bible says you reap what you sow. If I go down here to the bar and, you know, pound 14 beers and three shots and go down the street and hurt somebody, and then I say, God, why'd you let me do it? Well, come on, that's ridiculous. It's because I'm reaping what I sow. I brought this on myself, amen? And sometimes the enemy of our souls... He tries to plant fiery darts and obstacles and things in your way. I mean, Job talks about that a lot in some other places that tries to get the Christian off center so that they'll uh, forget the mission, forget the one whom loves them, who loves them, and do things that they wouldn't normally do. But sometimes God sends the test. And here we see it. A test. They came to pass after these things. What things? All the things. Listen, all the things that Abraham and Sarah were going through. Up. Faith. Not very much faith. Faith. Not very much faith. Faith. Not very much faith. Get it? And God here sends a test after they've laughed. And Abraham says uh, right there immediately, Hey, here I am. (laughs) Sound familiar? I mean, there's other places in the Old Testament that say, you know, when God calls, here I am, send me. Obedience, trust, faith, here I am. What God? I heard your voice. You asked me something. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Now that's interesting because we know it's not his only son. True? He has Ishmael. He's been sent out to the desert. But apparently, and probably, this is what this means. He's the one that's the son of the promise. He's the one of the son of the promise. Uh, Isaac, laughter. Whom you love. Whom you love. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah. And other uh, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, just something to think about. I just want you to store it away. I probably, I'm not even sure I'm going to expand on it very much, but you know that the Lord in the Old Testament, several places, talks about how the firstborn is his. Right? 
Remember that? Now, I know Ishmael was born first. And yet, this is the firstborn of the promise. And it belonged to the Lord, and you gave it back to the Lord. Several places in the Old Testament, as you move through the law and other places, that's discussed. Well, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, you you know all that's packed into that. Think about all that's packed into that sentence. First of all, he's the promised son. You've been waiting for this promise for 25 years for him to be born, and now he's been weaned and he's older now. He's in his teens or whatever, and you've loved him, and it's been a joy to have him, and you've watched your wife with her son. And it's been a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing, and you love him. And you remember the heartache that you went through and the sleepless nights and the prayers and not feeling good about where the promise was headed or at least how long the promise was taking. And you remember taking uh, these promises into your own hands, but I want you to take him now, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. What is a burnt offering? Well, you could look in Leviticus 1. They would kill the animal and then totally in the, in the burnt offering section of Leviticus, to, totally uh, uh, burn it up in the sacrificial fire. The other thing I want you to know is, where's Moriah? <laughs> well, Moriah, if you're looking at pictures of Israel, you remember where that Dome of the Rock thing is up on the Temple Mount? Anybody ever seen those pictures? Raise your hand. Dome of the Rock, the most contested area or piece of real estate in the world. Well, that is the Temple Mount area where the temple used to stand. So where Abraham offered up Isaac is where Solomon is going to build a temple. You get this? But I want you to know something about Jerusalem. It's really strange. When you say Mount Moriah, we're not talking about jagged peaks and snow, at least there, up in the north you are. But here, they're just sort of like hills with ridges that run through Jerusalem. And they're sort of long. And Moriah isn't a single peak, but it's like this elongated ridge that begins at the intersection of the Kidron and the Hinnom Valleys and goes all the way to the northwest of the Damascus Gate. And if you look it up online, you can see that and, 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 and search that out. And, uh, and, you know, people believe that this is where Jesus was led to the place of the skull there in Mount Moriah and the provision of all provisions for men's sin took place, okay? So the reason I'm telling you all this is there's no accidents here in the Bible. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah where the temple would be built that had the presence of the Lord, where on these ridges where Jesus would be sacrificed, to be on the cross, that's where he told him, and act as a burnt offering. And this is beautiful. I get excited about this because it's Leviticus. When were you required, oh boy, to give the burnt offering? When were you required? It's a trick question. Never. It was a free will offering. Ooh. See, that makes it, you could just feel the love when you know that. It was a free will offering. Even though Jesus in his humanity struggled in it, said, not my will, but thine be done. And you see, it pleased the father to bruise the son. But here he goes there and he's going to offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So watch. If I was setting my alarm for the next day and I'd been told this, I might set it for like 1 p.m., or three, or six. But this says Abraham rose early. You see here this immediate immediate obedience. 
You people, including me, who like to know every step of your life, raise your hand. Okay, Lord, uh, I want you to develop patience in me, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me everything I'm going to do this year. I'm going to start this afternoon. Where am I going to go? Who am I going to talk to? And, you know, if not, I might just hang out at my house until you tell me. Well, that's not how it happened here. Abraham rose early in the morning. He had no idea exactly how this was going to go down. No idea. He trusted immediately, even though he didn't completely understand it all. Somebody needs to hear that. I need to hear that. When I got jammed up on this, I used to get jealous about all the different churches in the area who were thriving. I tell you this story all the time. I got jammed up here. Lord, I know you told us to uh, uh, establish a church. Obviously, you're the one establishing, but you're, you, you do a church in the South Hills. Okay. And then you see other churches and you're like, Lord, what? 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 You told me. And you could get jammed up. I got jammed up. Because I was saying, I want to know in one year what I'm going to be doing and where I'll be. And I, and if you don't, I'm going to be mad. That's what I was saying. Maybe you said that. But here we see what trusting a loving God is like. Well, I'm going to trust even when I don't understand. I don't need to know it all. Abraham is saying, I'm just going to rely upon you. I don't even feel like trusting. He had to have said, come on, right? I don't even feel like this one. Couldn't you have had another test, Lord? But he rose early. What an amazing uh, two words right there. He rose early. He obeyed. Whoa. Whoa. In the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, laughter. He took laughter with him. Laughter, some people believe, is in his teens. Other people believe early 20s. Well, whatever. He's old enough to know, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. Lord, he could have said, I'm not going unless you tell me where I'm going why I'm going, what's going to happen there, etc. You ever said stuff like that? But he doesn't. He goes. And uh, then we find out something. Is it any coincidence that on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off? You ever thought about what those three days were like? Can you imagine the inner turmoil here? The prayers that must have gone up, Lord, why, how, what? I'm devastated. What can I do here, Lord? What the, the, the cries? You, you ever had that thing that happens to you when you have a big decision or something going wrong and there's a pit in your stomach and it's tough to sleep and all that sort of thing? And yet we know this. Abraham said to his young man, verse 5, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I'm going to go up there, and it actually says I'm going to go bow down. I'm going to go worship, and we're going to come back to you. Now watch. I know you know the story, but let it wash over you again. You're reading along here in Genesis chapter 22, maybe like me going, whoa, wait a second here. I don't know about this. And you're reading along and you're reading along and he gets up early and he actually cuts the wood. He chops the wood. Oh, three days. Oh. And then it says, with confident faith, full of faith, somehow, some way, stay here with the donkey, guys. The young man and I are going to go yonder. He must have been from Alabama or something, but... We're going to go out that way. We're going to bow down. Worship? Really? We're going to go worship. 
And we're going to come back to you. Now, let me show you something from the New Testament because there's commentary on this in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn over there. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we see he's talked about his faith in 8 through 12, but then again, isn't this interesting? A second time, Abraham's faith is discussed. Watch. By faith, verse 17, Abraham. How did Abraham do any of this in Genesis chapter 22? The Bible tells us in Hebrew 11, he did it by faith. When he was was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was, listen, somehow, some way. I don't know how. Abraham knew that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Somehow, some way, I don't know exactly. Maybe you do. When he was doing this, he was walking up there, his, his stomach is churning, yet he has a promise that even if the son dies, he'll be resurrected. Now that would make a big difference. Still would be ultra difficult, but it'd make a big difference. In other words... God never intended to kill the son in this story or never intended for Abraham to kill the son in this story or if he did, he was going to live. You understand? So Abraham knew it. What sustained Abraham in the time of testing? We all need to write this down. What sustained Abraham in the time of testing the promise of God? You're you're looking. You're going into bookstores. You're turning on the TV. And these people are selling you seven keys to happiness. If you do this and you do that, oh, you'll be so, you'll get this, you'll, you give me this amount of money, you're going to get this amount of money back. Baloney. What do we live in and depend on? God's promises. Not our faith in our faith. We believe in the God who makes the promise and his promise. And then we walk in that so that we don't have to fret and fear. He's going to come back to me. Now, Jesus expanded upon all this in the New Testament. That if we would believe in him, listen to this. Though you die, you'll live forever. (laughs) You had somebody to die? And you've been sad about it? Sure, of course, it's a human emotion. But in Christ, they live. They live. So it is sad, but it's also joyful because the Lord has done it. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself, or some translations actually believe what this is saying right here. Mark it down. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. 
So the two of them went together. Did you see what the father said to the son right there? Don't worry. God's provision will cure it all. Now, I want you to remember something here. Xander referred to this. I want you to, as we continue to explore this history, I want you to remember something that isn't just so apparent in the English. Go back to verse 2 when he says, Now take take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom... You love. Now, this is important. I mean, really important. Here's why. It's the first time the word love's used in the Bible, folks. Right here. In what context? The love of a father for the son. Oh, my goodness. It's the first time. And you know what's interesting? Holy Spirit inspired. The first use of love in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew 3, Mark Mark 1, Luke 3, shows the Father calling out from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son at the baptism of Jesus. Which also, by the way, folks... What does a baptism speak of? Death and resurrection. Hey, by the way, John's not a synoptic gospel, but the first place where love occurs in John, by the way, love occurs more in that book than any other book, but guess where it first appears? You know it. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so what I want to say here as we took that little pause and went back, look, this story is about a father's love for his son here, yes, Abraham and Isaac, but look, on a Scale, a worldwide scale. It's about the Father's love for us. We say it all the time, but you know, people are running around in society with anxiety and fear and skepticism and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and hurt and unhealed healing. You know what I'm saying? They're just no healing. And we're edgy and on edge. And, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons is we don't believe we're loved, accepted. You know, one of the great uh, (laughs) philosophers, Christian philosophers, they asked him on his deathbed, if you could tell people one thing about what you've learned all these years, (laughs) what would you want them to know? You know what he said? Jesus loves me. This I know. He sang it. It's so elementary. But you need to know how much the Father loves you. Is it any um, coincidence that the first place that love's used is a depiction in the Old Testament of the death and resurrection of the Son? No, it's not. All the answers of life, every single answer, all answers, all the answers are found at the cross. Who you are, what you are, what's your purpose, why you're living, where you're going, how you're going to get there. It's all by the cross. How to be a good disciple, etc. I could just go on and on. It's at the cross. So he says, as you go back, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. (laughs) So the two of them went together, and then they came to the place which God had told him. Mariah, the ridgeline, 
little hill that runs throughout Jerusalem. That's where they are. And Abraham built an altar. I, I, I can hardly imagine. Everywhere he went, he was a worshiper. He builds an altar to the Lord, and he places the wood in order. I would have probably thrown the wood in disgust. He places it in order, and he bound Isaac, his son. And listen, folks, if Isaac wanted to get out of being bound by a hundred-year-old man, this would have been no problem. He wouldn't have sat there or laid there. He laid there willingly. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but praised the Lord. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, hey, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Talks about not loving idols, getting idols out of your life. Folks, everything from relationships to business to money to sex to drugs to music to movies, whatever, can have a greater grip on our hearts than the Lord himself. And the Lord is wants us to lay those things down. And sometimes he sends tests to reveal whether or not we've gone to that place with his help. You know what's interesting? I know that you fear God since you haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. Do you know this God displayed his heart towards us, his love towards us in the same exact way. God didn't withhold his son from us. It's so mysterious and so beautiful. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Look, it's teaching you something. God was going to accept a substitute. Listen, this is better right here than a Pirates World Series than $10 gazillion in your bank account. It's that he didn't withhold his son from us. Oh, my. Then Abraham lifted his eyes, looked, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. There's a substitute. I'm not going to be able to take ten gazillion dollars with me. I'm not going to be able to take the pirate's victory with me. I'm not going to be able to take my hobby collection with me. I'm not going to be able to take the sex that I had with me or the money that I had or the rock and roll or whatever it was. None of the idols am I going to be able... To put up there, because if I did, I mean, I'd just be consumed. But praise the Lord. Listen, Jesus comes and he t- sort of tucks himself, tucks us behind him and says, I'll be your lawyer, your advocate. I'm taking what's coming for you. And now as I've raised, I'm at seated at the right hand, interceding for you. And I'm your advocate. You ever been in court without a lawyer? Yeah, my wife does it all the time with the parking tickets. But anyway, (laughs) don't tell the municipal judge up there. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, he sees her a lot. No, I'm kidding. I actually was there. I was coming home from Ohio seeing our family with three boys. We were rushing back to watch the Stanley Cup game, and I went through some place down by Bridgeville. And I'm a lawyer, man, and I had to go to court and talk about it and think. I was nervous. It's no fun being in court. You ever been in court? No fun. Especially when you're not the advocate. (laughs) But they're accusing you. And it's tense. And your liberty's at stake. And it's, but here, here, here. And in this case, your life is at stake. 
And Jesus steps up and says, I'm here on behalf of her or him. And God sees us through the lens of his sacrifice. Oh my, a substitute. Here it is right here. God says, oh, the ram, and I'll provide it. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. Genesis is big on new names for God, the God who sees, the God who hears. Praise the Lord. There's a God who hears me. You ever come from a bad home? Maybe some of us come from a bad home. Nobody will listen to me at home. It's a real drag. It really has hurt me here. God says, I'll listen. Yeah, but, I mean, nobody understands what my situation is. Nobody even can empathize with me. No one sees what's going on in my life. God says, I'll watch. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I'm like a fish out of water here, Lord, and I'm a sinner, and I know, and how how can I ever be good enough to get to you? And God says, stop it, (laughs) in a good way. He goes, I'll provide the sacrifice. It's staggering. I'll provide the sacrifice. I'm the God who provides. I'll provide the sacrifice. You can be reconciled back to me. Uh, uh, My wrath will be satisfied in a substitute, but it'll be my son who will come. The God son, the son God. Not S-U-N, son, S-O-N. The son of God, God's son. He'll come from heaven. You're like, why are you making such a big deal of this? Then the angel, I'm going to show you right here. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars out of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Uh, These are, he's reiterating promises he's given to him. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now look, folks, you have seen this. Just hang on for two more topics. Obviously, you're seeing in the Old Testament in Genesis 21 a picture of what Jesus is going to do. The Father and the Son cooperating in the sacrifice. And we see here in this story the Son submitting to the sacrifice. That's powerful. That shouts to you and to me that you're loved and that you and I are part of something that's way bigger than a 401k or a white picket fence or vacations or golf or football. You're part of something bigger. It's this struggle that God wins for the souls and lives of men and women, boys and girls, to live with them forever. It's a promise. It's a surety. And yet we go along sort of dazed and confused sometimes. We get off kilter, lack of faith, just like Abraham. And this chapter calls you back to the cross because the son willingly submitted. That's powerful. The son submitted. And there was fire, and he was bound. He, the wood was laid upon him, and he, they walked up the hill. I mean, the image is just what Jesus would do. And there was fire like the wrath of God poured out on Christ at the cross. And there was a knife like the sword of justice. Justice was being delivered. And the cords were sort of like the nails or the spikes that were pounded into his wrists and his feet. 
And of course, we see this amazing doctrine of substitution. Man, substitutionary sacrifice gets me jazzed. (laughs) And maybe it does you too, because here's why. Oh, man, if I had to pay. Zap. But then I want you to see one more thing before you go home. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, where Paul is sort of commenting on all that's happening In fact, look, we're going to look at the end of chapter 3, but look in chapter 4, folks. This is tied right to Abraham's faith. We see him in chapter 4. And Paul here has been talking about righteousness trying to be achieved by the law is impossible, but that righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, To all and on all believe. Just hang with me for a minute. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Here it comes. Wake up. Being justified. Justified means just as if you never sinned. Justified. It's a judicial, it's a spiritual judicial decree. It's nothing I did or you did. It's nothing. It's because of what Jesus accomplished that God can hit the gavel and say, you're justified. You're not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. Now watch. Justified freely. How? By his grace. He's a giving God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation, what's that? Big word. Who here remembers slate roofs? Only three of us remember slate roofs. You do, you're too young, but God bless you. Slate roof, what did they used to have at a slate roof? A lightning rod. Remember? Because if the lightning came, they didn't want to shatter the roof, right? I don't know, I'm not construction guy, but that's what I think. And what the lightning rod would take the lightning and dissipate it so that it wouldn't be ruined. That's sort of what propitiation is. God poured out his wrath, propitiation, on Jesus. And for those who find themselves in Christ, the wrath is gone against them. Propitiation. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Look, here it is again. Through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now here it comes. Here's why I read you all of this. When I read this, (laughs) I just get so choked up. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. And then here, here it is right here. That he, God, the Father, might be just. In other words, listen, he could deliver justice. And also pardon us. He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith In Jesus, do you see why faith is so important? You get to this place and you go, whoa, wait a minute. Everybody's condemned under the rules of the law. But by the grace of God, he sent his son Jesus to those who believe on him. Listen, it frees up God. Maybe that's not the best way of saying it. But anyway, God can now be, look, both the one who delivers justice because God couldn't say, oh, Tim, I I know you did that and you did that and you did that and you did that and you missed the mark and you know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to forget it. God couldn't say that. 
He has to deliver his justice and wrath against the sin so he can be both the one who is just and the one who's the justifier who can bring the gavel down and say, not guilty. You're guilty, but you're not guilty. Amen is right. And it's all because of Jesus. Because God would provide sacrifice. Look, look, look. So we didn't have to. Because if we had to, it'd be over. I just want you to remember, when you're reading Genesis 22, I want you to remember things. Love. Justice, not guilty because of a substitute. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here and we think, wow, this is deep, very deep. (laughs) And Lord, people have been thinking about it and studying it for centuries, years, And I pray we would just look over this and have your spirit speak to us through your word. Lord, bring these truths home to our hearts and our minds so that we would feel settled and confident, but not confident in us, confident in you, confident in your plan, confident in your promise so that we could walk through life meek and mild, yet powerful and strong. In you, power belongs to God. Lord, that we could have patience and move through the fires of testing with patience and honor and joy and love and prayerfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.